Okay, so I am a user experience architect. Well, it's my job title at the moment. Um, I'm not sure if I'm totally happy with that as a, as a title. It's kind of, I see myself as a champion of, of, of real people rather than anything in particular. Um, but it's what they print on my business cards, so I'll just live with it for now. So I've been working in UX for sort of seven, eight years, and it's been mainly in agencies or freelancing through agencies. And that's uh, informed a lot of what I'm going to talk about today. I no longer work in an agency, though, and I can't believe the difference it's made to my quality of life. It's amazing. Um, so if any of you out there are still working in agencies, really consider a move. Um, it's quite phenomenal, the amount of time you get back. Um, and today I'm going to talk about uh, one of the biggest challenges we face as kind of UX people, or people that are interested in user experience, and that's getting user-centered design uh, on the agenda with stakeholders and decision makers within organizations, um, and making sure that end users are actually listened to and are valued, and that um, organizations understand that we're nothing without our users. We're, we, you know, we're absolutely nothing. The question that I come back to again and again is, how do we make really great digital stuff, whether we're building apps or sites or sort of digital services, how do we make them really, really good? And how do we make them shared and liked and endorsed and have a life beyond their launch date? One of the perils of working in an agency is you are like in a meat factory and you're just farming out kind of pieces of work again and again and again. And the focus on the end users sort of dies away over time as, as kind of companies lose interest in the products they release. And that's really sad. Now, I may be biased in saying this as I work in UX, but I really believe that the answer lies in understanding what people need and want and that no amount of um, stats and graphs can, can do anything as much as user research can. And I really believe that user research is awesome um, and that it solves many problems that we have as designers. Um, it also stops us focusing too much on technical platforms, on functionality, and on uh, kind of the sort of guesswork that goes into a lot of, uh, of design, um, which is ill-informed, or um, you kind of make poor choices when you don't really understand what people want. But if we can understand our audiences better, we can make much better decisions. Um, and those decisions tend to be a lot easier to make because we have actual information to base them on. And user research is pretty, um, pretty simple at its heart, really. Um, and when I talk about user research, what I'm referring to is things like um, sort, of, uh, sort of lab testing or not testing, whatever you want to call it, but kind of putting products in front of people and watching them fail, pretty much. Um, depth interviews, uh, field research, guerrilla testing, ethnographic studies, anything where you're going out and actually seeing people use stuff and do things. Um, and that boils down to saying, you know, asking um, how do people do things? Why do they do them? When do they do them? And when we ask them these questions, we have to actually listen to what they say and take it on board and, and actually do something with it, not just kind of file it away somewhere. When we do research, 
we're immensely privileged because we get to see the impact our work has on people. We get to see the problems it causes people. We get to see uh, the challenges they face. And we see it in very emotional terms. We really can empathise with the people we're speaking to because we see them suffer. We see them have a hard time. Like we saw in Lisa's video this morning, um, a small thing can totally demoralise someone and ruin their day or their week or even prevent them being able to go on holiday if they can't get a passport. Um, things that really affect them. And we carry that around with us, this knowledge and this, this kind of uh, understanding. But, and that's power. That's power for when we come to make our design decisions. But with great power comes great responsibility. And if you do research, then you are responsible for making sure uh, these people don't go through the same problems again. Now, the trouble is, documenting and communicating human experiences is really hard. If you try and write a report based on user research, it's really difficult, really difficult to make it something that people want to read. Um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's something that we've really failed at in user experience, is we've not really even focused or thought about the documents we produce and the way that we, we record and share our work. We tend to produce really boring research reports. They're an absolute drag to read. They're only interesting to the person that's written them most of the time. And they don't get the traction that they should do within stakeholder teams because they're so dull and they're too long and they don't focus on the right things. And this, I say this with a, a slight bit of caution because I do, I have worked at various agencies, but I think in many ways these reports have come from agencies because it's something we can sell. It's something that we can um, monetize and itemize on, on a day rate, so they're quite profitable. Um, they're not necessarily the best tool for the job, though. Um, and they tend to have this effect. And I know for certain that I've been guilty in the past of writing some really horrific reports that I am sure have just ended up um, on someone's table catching you know, dust or on a file server somewhere, not really doing very much. And that's really sad, and it's something that we should all be really concerned about, that you know, if we don't produce things in the right format, they're not going to get uh, heard, let alone built. Um, now, there's a cartoonist called Ivan Brunetti, and he's got a great, a great quote around... Um, a lengthy description of a glass of water is no substitute for the experience of drinking a glass of water. When we go out and we speak to people and we see them fail and we see them kind of suffer at the hands of the interface, then we have this experience of drinking. If, if your stakeholders and your teams can't attend user research sessions, then they're left with a dry mouth pretty much. How are they going to get this kind of experience that we have? Um, so it's up, it's up to us to find a way to communicate this stuff. It's up to us to find a way to, to make them care and make them care about these people. Um, and if we don't engage these decision makers in making the right choices, then we're failing as designers and we're failing as UX people or whatever you want to call us. Now, Lisa touched on this as well earlier. Um, but people love stories. It's one way to engage them. Um, but people also love comics. And... Storytelling and comics are, well, totally hand in hand, and they have been for, um, 
well, going back to ancient Egypt, so mm, 8,000 years ago, they devised a system of hieroglyphics, which, are, you know, just words and pictures. And as Scott McLeod says, words and pictures can combine to make something that they couldn't, they couldn't produce um, on their own. They have enormous impact. And comics, so the combination of words and pictures, are ingrained in our visual culture. We hang them in art galleries. We fill our high streets with merchandise about comics. We even wallpaper public toilets with comics. And we use comics to communicate information that would be, uh, that would be a language barrier if, if, if we had to try and translate it. So this is an example of um, an in-flight safety card where no language is used, but we can all understand really clearly and simply how to put on an inflatable life vest. So it's serious business, this comic stuff. 17,897. It's a really big number. It's a really nice number. I really like this number. And that's because it's the number of comic strips that Charles Schultz produced for Peanuts. So Peanuts ran for 50 years, from the year 1950 to 2000. And over that period of time, whole... Uh, whole sort of families raised their kids on, on Peanuts and then their kids started reading Peanuts and it sort of transcends um, generations, which is amazing. And it's given Charles Schultz the accolade of telling the longest story ever told by one person. And it's just a little comic, just a really simple comic. It's not even complicated artwork, it's simple drawings. And it spawned a whole kind of ecosystem of, of information and, and, and mini-stories and characters. And it's, um, it's joyful if you haven't read it. Um, it's really, it's really thought-provoking and very human. But why comics in a, in a web design setting? Why comics in business? Well, two-thirds of all of the communication we, we, we do as humans is non-verbal, so that's anything that isn't kind of written or sort of, sort of actual word-based. Um, that's, those are types of communication like facial expressions, eye contact, gaze, pupil size, uh, body language, whether it's open or closed, uh, gestures, so pointing, um, waving fists, that sort of thing. Um, speech, so the actual tone of voice and the, um, the speed at which someone's talking. We get so much rich information from this. We don't even notice we're processing it. It's amazing how fast our brains work to to sort of interpret and pull in these, these pieces of information that, that we're giving out all the time. And comics really play into this. Comics really make the most of this nonverbal communication. And I'll show you a few examples. So here we have a lady. Now, when you're looking at her, your mind is already kind of racing, um, trying to find pieces of information that, that communicate to you about what her general dis disposition's like and how, you know, who she is and what is her relevance to you. Is she a threat? Isn't she a threat? All of these sorts of things. We look at her and we say, well, she's probably quite confident. She's got quite, you know, reasonably open body language. She's smiling. She's got sort of, uh, you know, confident posture. She doesn't look worried. We can get pretty much the same information from a little stick man, though, without any facial expressions. We're, we're that keyed in to body language and nonverbal communication. 
that we can interpret that from a stick man. And I think that's kind of magic that our brains can do that. Here's another example. Here's a lady that's not very happy. So she's maybe angry or annoyed or disappointed in some way. Not She's got closed, angry body language. And again, here's our little stick man conveying that same sort of feeling. Um, and it, it's immediate. We don't need to process that. We need no labels to interpret that. And stick men can make amazing actors at acting out scenarios and acting out the stuff that we do. We're also really open to the power of suggestion, and we can really use this to our advantage when we're communicating information in comics, because we're so desperate to piece together information into a way that we can make sense of it and turn it into a story, that we'll quite readily um, attach abstract information together. So in this example, here's a girl, she's using a phone. We don't know why, but she looks as if she's about to tap something or do something. So she may be taking a photograph, she may be sending an email, she may be writing something, she may be playing a game. Loads of different things she could be doing. But if I introduce this, then our brains are kind of cranking into action going, well, maybe she's just got a ticket, maybe she's buying a ticket on a phone, maybe she's won a ticket in a game. It's like tick, 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 all these things that we're kind of working through about what's the most likely scenario. And then if we do this, then we know the context and we've, we're already building a story around it. Maybe she's not at home, so maybe she's trying to get home. What, what's she doing now? Well, that's what you want to know. All of these little interesting tangents. And that's just sort of some very, very simple devices thrown together on a page. But as humans, we get tied into them. We get pulled into these stories. And that's where the power lies when we're communicating with people that have very short attention spans and very little time. But maybe you're thinking, comics are just for kids. My clients wouldn't get it. My clients are too serious. Maybe it's fine if you're you know, working for a, a, a kid's app or a kid's website, but I've actually found that out of all the clients I've used comics with, it's the most dry, boring ones that benefit the most. It's the ones that are drowning in their own documentation already. Um, that re They really do have this effect on suited, grey-haired men. Um, it's amazing. So, as a tool, they're they're welcomed. People see a comic and they want to read it. And it's amazing. I've never had one of my research reports read like that, um, which is quite disheartening. But people read them and they have little discussions about them. They print them out, they stick them on walls, they write on them, um, and they have totally different conversations. The conversations are around what would this person do and, and why would they do this? And, and look at that. They would never do this. And the, the the conversations open up this whole new world of focusing on users rather than thinking about documentation, lists and features and um, in the interface mechanics. It allows people to build empathy with users. So even if they can't see real users, they get to put themselves in the shoes of the characters in the comic. And it's quite a magical situation where you get you get a, a very senior stakeholder who is um, uh, very, uh, mm, what's the best way to put it, like hard-nosed, sort of uncaring, very financially focused. But if you get them to actually empathize with someone in, and see the sort of day-to-day -day struggles people actually have that they can relate to that frustrate them, 
you bring out a whole new side of the stakeholder and you unearth whole new um, ways to, to kind of get them involved. It means you have conversations where, you know, people are very much at the heart of, of, of the discussion and it's no longer around, well, who's going to design the UI and is it going to be flat design and should we use bootstrap? It's, you know, what, what are people really trying to do here? What really matters? So, the fun bit. Understanding comics. Well, we're pretty good at understanding them, but just in case any of you have been kind of living in a cave somewhere for the past 50 years, here's a little introduction. The main types of comic, you have single panel comics, one single panel, as it says on the tin. You have comic strips, so a series of panels in a sequence, sequential art, um, tends to be, mm, well, two to five maybe. I like three, it's a nice it's a nice number to work with when you're making panels, um, strips of panels. And you have pages, so you have complete stories worked out. This is sort of getting into a, a, a more of a comic book realm where you have multiple pages. Um, so you made your whole user stories through a, a comic like this. The most exciting part of any comic is the gutters, though the bits that lie in between the panels. Because these are the bits where anything can happen and you don't have to draw it. Um, and our brains are clever enough to mesh together all of our assumptions to make it, it real, so you think it's happened, but it hasn't. So the gutters allow us to show time passing really easily and things like that. It's, it's, the, it's the sort of the magic bits. If you're going to make a comic, it's essential that you have a storyline. It's essential that you understand what your story is and you've, you've created a proper plot and that you know what it is from start to middle to end. We're not making um, sort of avant-garde pieces of work here or we're not trying to do something like Memento in comic format. We do need a beginning, middle and end. Um, people get very upset when you deviate from that and they find it very awkward and unsatisfying. And we're not out to do that, we're out to sort of get people on our side. So if we follow the sort of traditional Hollywood movie blockbuster um, story arc, we start out by establishing what normality is. So we establish our characters, we introduce them, we uh, introduce the setting and the, s the sort of the scenes. Um, and then we have a big kind of catastrophic event happen or something goes on. So if I was making a comic about uh, someone needing to get to a hospital, this would be where their child has the accident and sort of all hell breaks loose. Um, and, and that's when they have to sort of get their phone out and try and struggle with directions and things. You spend the rest of the story trying to resolve itself back to normality, so trying to reach that sort of equilibrium again. And that's a very basic structure, but it's very easy to put into web terms, I've found. So you have three main types of speech in comics. You have sort of the spoken, spoken words, you have thoughts, and you have the machine voice. You don't have to use words, though. You can really effectively use symbols. And they're even faster to interpret for your readers and um, make it even quicker for them to interpret what you're talking about. I'd say if you really want to get into the sort of mechanics of comics, I'd really recommend getting this book, which I expect many of you have come across. Um, Scott McLeod is, is arguably one of the top comic 
uh, people in the world. He's got he's got two really great books if you're interested in making comics. So there's Understanding Comics, which is this one, and there's also another book called Making Comics, which, like it says on the tin, is more to do with the nuts and bolts of actually making them. But this one is a great kind of introduction if you're not a comic book reader into the sort of the the way that comic books are made and, and the sort of the history and the significance of them. And here comes the biggest um, obstruction for most people in making comics is the but I can't draw problem. And I, re I do struggle with this one because when we're kids, we all think that we're artists and we all think that we can draw and we all can draw. But at some point when we hit like the, the nasty teenage phase, we lose all of that and we become incredibly um, intolerant of our own skills and abilities. So much so it prevents us from doing things, it paralyzes us. And it's rubbish because uh, a stick man is just as good as you know, a fully rendered piece of artwork. Stick man could be argued it's better than a fully rendered piece of artwork when it comes to comics because it shows that it's not fixed, it shows it's changeable and it's in flux. So I'll highlight that with XKCD. You know, their stick men are able to do anything and it doesn't matter that they're stick men and they're beautiful in their simplicity and the simplicity detracts nothing from the ideas and, and the stuff that they communicate. It's still just as potent um, as something more complicated. And in XKCD, something that's beautiful about it that I look out for is the posture of the stick men. They, they always manage to nail the, 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 the posture, the slight slump of kind of using a computer they've just got down to a T. Um, so to help you get over your fear of drawing, I'm going to do a really quick introduction to how to draw um, stuff to make your own comics. So when it comes to drawing faces, it's incredibly easy. All you have to do is draw a roundish shape. Feel free to draw along with me. You draw a line through the middle of it. You draw a line about a third of the way down from that and you draw another line sort of m middle between those two. You then add in a line down vertically down the centre of it and this is your framework for making your face. This is where you hang all of your uh, facial features onto this framework. You then add your eyes in, which go kind of halfway between each sort of side of the semicircle. Your nose sits on the line in underneath that and the mouth in underneath that. You pop your eyebrows above the eyes, believe it or not, and they don't have a line because they move around when we, when we sort of gesture and talk and things, so they're mobile. And if you want to be fancy, you can add in ears as well. They're not 100% necessary because they're not very expressive in humans, but you can add them on if you want to be kind of a bit more anatomically correct. Now, if you follow that recipe, you'll be able to draw faces consistently, and you'll be able to draw them so they're recognisable as human faces as well. But of course, the challenge is then, well, most of the time people are doing things and looking at stuff. Um, and if you want to show people looking at things, then you just curve your lines. You just curve them towards the direction that uh, you want them to look in. So they either curve left or right, and then up or down. Um, and you can sort of do any direction with that, and it doesn't have to be perfect. All you're trying to do is get across the fact it's a human face. So, it's, you know, you can keep it really simple.
But of course, you need to be able to draw expressions. You need to be able to draw the sort of emotions of people, um, how they how they do stuff. So all of these faces are identical, apart from their eyebrows and mouths. So all of these little chaps are, you know, the same guy, let's say, but experiencing wildly different emotions. And that's done just with a few differences in the marks we've made there. And that's, uh, eyebrows and mouths are just so amazing at communicating stuff. Um, the rest of our faces are rubbish in comparison to what they can do. And I'd really recommend, if you do try and make comics, make yourself a little sheet uh, of expressions to refer back to, because it's really useful to look at um, uh, the, the, the different uh, sort of proportions so that you, you kind of know what you're aiming at when it comes to kind of mouth size or eyebrow sort of strength and things like that. Um, and it helps to have a mirror as well. So the guy that created Calvin and Hobbes used to sit um, with a mirror by his sort of drawing equipment and pull faces at himself the whole time to capture Calvin's amazing, expressive sort of uh, squirms and grimaces. And I love the thought of him sitting there for hours on end, just kind of making faces at himself. Well, what about drawing figures? Well, the, the, the way that I do them is to, is to sort of base them on a, a sort of proportion of about four heads high. It's not anatomically correct, but you don't have to be. And it's almost better not to be, because all you really want to do is indicate it's a human. I would say if you do make stick men, always make sure they have shoulders and hips instead of doing the, the legs and arms coming directly out of the body sort of stem. Because if you give them shoulders and hips, you've got a lot more uh, to work with when it comes to showing emotion. Shoulders are amazing at conveying kind of uh, sort of uh, sort of fright where you kind of raise your shoulders up and sort of suck your neck into your body and sort of things like that. And if you have just the, the arms coming straight out, it doesn't really work. So I've got my legs at about about two heads high. I've got the torso at a bit, sort of a head and a half, and then of course the head is a head high. Um, that's about right. If you go more squished than that, you go into the realms of kind of Japanese sort of uh, chibi anime type uh, caricatures that are a bit too cutesy. And if you go kind of too correct um, proportion-wise, then you've kind of lost some of the abstraction that's a benefit. Like the simpler the character is, the more people can empathize and put themselves into it. When you are drawing your, your figures, I'd recommend sort of plotting on where the joints and limbs are because it'll help you understand how the body moves and how if you need to make an adjustment, where to it needs to bend or, or flex or move. And it does make a difference. The other thing that helps is to s put some weight onto your skeletons. So plot on like the chest area and the hips area because then you'll get a real sense of how that character is going to be kind of weighted on the ground and it stops it from feeling like this floaty thing that can go anywhere. If you want to take your characters further then it's pretty simple. Here are some of my sort of uh, rubbishy drawings. I am in no way an artist. Um, I do not consider myself kind of a, a drawer even. I just do drawing because it's the same as writing, really. Um, 
So once you've uh, once you've done your uh, put the weight on the character. I don't know the best word to describe this, but I call it putting sausages on. So you kind of put these sort of roundish shapes to, to represent the main kind of bulk um, of, the, of the body on. And you're going to rub all of those out so it doesn't need to be perfect at all. But if you try and dress your character when there's still a stick, you, it's really hard to get clothes to kind of sit on that and to feel right and just okay. Um, so if they've got sausages on, it's much easier to put sort of trousers and clothes on them. So you do you do your sausages, then you add in your details, you put the clothes on, you, you kind of do do some sort of the face and the hair and things, and then you go over it with pen. And then the sort of slightly dangerous part happens, which is you, you rub out the pencil, and that's where things can get really messy if you've not waited long enough for it to, your pen to, dr pen to dry. It's then, you know, you can leave it at that or you can take it into a program like uh, Adobe Illustrator, which is what I use, and I turn my uh, drawings into vectors and sort of tidy up, like, strays, smudged pen and things like that, and then colour them in. I'm rubbish at doing colouring on paper. It, it would just be messy and too time-consuming. It's way easier for me to just sort of drop colours in. And I've got kind of my little workflow worked out in Illustrator, so I can do that and, and things. But that's not essential. You don't have to do coloured in things. You can do stick men. It's totally fine. What's important, though, is if you do do stick men, you still need to develop your characters and make them identifiable. So here we have um, a little chap, but he's pretty plain. If we had two people like that in a comic, they'd be really hard to tell the difference between them. But if we give him just a little bit of hair, he already starts to have a little bit more identity. And if we give him an accessory, then he is recognisable as an individual. We can tell it's, it's a character. And we can then explore what our character does. So we can try drawing different postures and different expressions. And already we've got a little person coming to life that's got different emotions and, and thinks about things in their own way. Once we've got this, then we're already well on our way to making a comic. If you can get to the stage where you've got your character planned out, that's some of the hardest stuff done. So, what about creating a comic? Well, it depends what you want to do, where you need to start out. So, if you want to introduce an audience to your um, readers, um, for instance, what you might do with personas traditionally, you might kind of want to get everyone on a team to know these different audience groups. You can do that with comics. Um, so you could make a single panel comic to just illustrate the, the, the person in the situation and setting with the type of thing that they're trying to do, a core activity. If, though, you want to share an event or an interaction, so something a, a bit more complex and a bit sort of deeper, then a comic strip may be a better format for you. So just a few panels, so incredibly quick to read and very quick to make, but it will tell that little bit more. Um, whereas if you want to communicate an entire user journey, you will need to make a, you know, a, proper, a, a proper comic. But then what? So, I'm sorry that's slightly cut off, but you need to define your characters. So like what we've been talking about, um, we need to work out what they look like, what emotions they're experiencing. 
We then need to create our plot. So we need to define what the beginning, the middle, and the end is. So we need to set the scene, identify what happens, and determine what the resolution is going to be. We then need to define what the, the settings are and the props. So what kind of visual devices can we use to indicate to people what's going on? Do we need them to be using a phone or a desktop computer? Will they be using an iPad while watching telly? What sort of props do we need? And if you're not very confident drawing, I mean, uh, the thing I'd recommend is, is tracing stuff. So whether you trace it in Illustrator, which is what I do, or you could trace it just by printing something out and drawing around it, who cares if that's cheating? You're not being judged on that. You're being judged on the effectiveness of your storytelling. Um, so that's totally fine. You then need to draw thumbnail sketches. And like uh, Stephen was saying, thumbnail sketches are really important. Um, they are the, the most essential stage in there, I'd, I'd say, actually, because they're where I see most people go wrong when I run my comic-making workshops. They're the thing that people always want to skip and then always fall, fall over when they do skip it because they haven't planned what they're going to do. They don't know how they're going to set up their panels, and it takes them so much longer to draw. You then need to draft your speech and annotations. So use as few words as possible and keep refining them. Keep seeing if you can make it clear or make it simpler because the fewer words you have, the more likely people are to read them. You then assemble your comic panels. You don't need to do it all in one go. You can cut up paper and stick it together. Um, you can you know, use a, a piece of software called Comic Life, which is what I use, which is sort of makes it really easy to assemble comics together. Then you must test what you've made with people. You must check that it's got the message that you want it to have and that you need it to have. Because if you don't check that your story is conveying the right message, you run the risk of completely misinforming people by accident, by assuming that it makes sense. Then once you've amended your details, you can, of course, share them. And it's really good to provide people with paper copies and digital copies. Because something I've found is that... Um, yeah, the paper copies get stuck up and on, on the walls and things. But then other departments within organisations see them, ask the stakeholders within that team, what's that? I want, I want to see that. And then if you've got digital copies, they get shared around. And I've had my comics shared virally across organisations because they've, they've engaged people. There's been a novelty factor there, definitely, that have hooked people in. But it's meant that I've got to work on projects that have kind of ballooned in scope in a really positive way. Because we've gone from the, the only working with one stakeholder team to working with multiple ones, looking at entire user journeys, both on and offline. So I did this within a, a sort of a, a financial, a sort of car finance company, um, where I was initially just hired to look at. Um, the, the financial quotation software that they use within dealerships and within their underwriters to process uh, transactions. And they wanted comics to illustrate how the system might work in the future. But when I shared those comics with them, it turned out that they got shared with all of their marketing teams, which were responsible for 
all of the, the sort of print materials within within car dealerships and within the training of the, the sales staff as well. So I got to work with all of them as well. And then I got to work on the, the supporting websites that, that kind of looked after those dealerships. And then I got to work on the kind of the app interfaces of things as well. So that all came about because of the simple emailing of some, some sort of PDFs of a comic, which is amazing, really. And I'll say it again, if you don't plan what you're going to do, you make your life really hard and you'll double or triple the amount of time you spend making a comic. I can make a comic in under two hours if I want to, um, but only if I spend you know, an hour and a half planning what I'm going to do and then drawing it out, and then it's easy. If I don't do that, then it'll take days. So on to some practical ways to use comics. An excellent use of comics is for pitching. And if, if any of you agency people um, out there have to do pitching, then you probably have experienced the pain of being asked to create some, some collateral for a pitch where you have no time or budget to do any research. You don't really have any time full stop. You've kind of got to sort of shoehorn you know, some, some time out of another project to kind of get in this kind of piece of pitch stuff. And you're loath to do a design because you know it's ultimately going to be what the, the client wants and you'll spend the rest of the project, if you win the work, trying to get away from making this thing that you didn't ever really want to make because it's not based on anything. So comics can be great for, for solving the pitching collateral problem because... They can't come back to haunt you in the same way that other spec work can. So if we have a look at a pretend brief I've put together for a pretend client called the camera shop, um, they've come along with a brief that says that they currently have lots of um, professional photographers that use, use their site to buy gear from, but they really want to increase the number of amateur photographers because they believe that that's where the real money lies, that there's a lot more people spending smaller amounts but more frequently. So what are we to do? Well, I don't like doing any work without at least some research, and without some insight into customer behaviour. So in situations like this, I use forums. And in the UK, there's one called Money Saving Expert that I've spent hours on doing user research because people go on there and post all kinds of things and then get help from other people. And you, you learn so much about the way people use the internet. It's, it's an absolute goldmine of, of, of information. So in this example, we have someone asking um, for suggestions for a compact camera around the £100 mark. And that they've done a lot of Googling, but there's such a massive range of kit available, it's been hard for them to narrow down a selection. So already we're starting to get a few requirements here and a few bit of an idea of what people may want. So they want it to be compact. They're interested with image quality, um, more so than features. They don't need huge, a huge amount of megapixels or kind of crazy optical zoom or Wi-Fi or touchscreens. Um, so they've got you know, quite a simple set of requirements, but still they've not been able to fulfill it alone. So there's definitely a problem here that we may be able to do something with for this potential client. But we need to turn this into a story. So we need to pull the facts out and find out, you, you know, develop a bit more. So we can say Bob wants to buy a new compact camera. So he's our, he's our character now. And he's shopped around, but he's been overwhelmed by the variety and choice of cameras. 
So he doesn't want a lot of fancy features. He does care about image quality. He's got up to £100 to spend. And he's looking for help to make a decision. So if we break that down in, into an actual narrative structure, what we get is that um, Bob is wanting to buy a new camera because his current one has broken. So that is some artistic embellishment here, but it's our kind of our moment of drama to, to create interest and, and empathy with our readers. So he wants to replace his camera before he goes on holiday. So we have a sense of urgency in this, that he does need to, to get this done. Um, and he's not going to browse endlessly. So he's looked on several websites, but has been overwhelmed by the choice. He needs help to refine his appropriate cameras into a more manageable shortlist, or even to find the best one for him. So we're starting to sort of think about how, how this kind of uh, service might, might work for him now. So the site or app needs to allow him to control his searching and browsing so he can manage the volume of results and it needs to give him choice but not overwhelm him. And notice how I've, um, you know, I'm not having to commit to this being a website. We can keep it open. In the world of comics, we don't have to commit to formats because it is so, uh, so open. And when people read them, they're not um, worried about getting stuck in down holes or kind of confined to things. So we know he needs to be able to look at cameras based on their size because he wants it to be compact. Their image quality, it needs to take nice pictures, and its price must be under £100. So if we put that into um, uh, like a shopping list, so this is like a shopping list for the panels I'd need to create. So this is what I know I need to work through. And then this is what it comes out like. So this, this two-pager, was I did it in Illustrator, um, and it was under two hours to put together. Um, maybe even less than that. And although I do hint at some interface elements, I've never found clients hold me to them in comics. They're always seen as part of the comic, not part of the real thing. So I can explore ideas without getting stuck. So that's one, one way to use them. The other way is to bring research to life with them. And this is part of a comic that I did for the, the car finance um, company, who incidentally had never conducted any user research before. So this was all new to them. It was also an incredibly complex system we were looking at. So the comics are s slightly more complex than I would normally do. Um, but again, it, it's given, it gave us the opportunity as a team to really discuss the way that the customer was going to be part of the, the, the buying experience, that even though we were focusing on this um, financial system, that only played a small part in the actual user journey. It was kind of a hugely expensive and important system, but it was kind of small fry when it came to the actual customer decision-making um, process. Another way to use comics is to test ideas with users. And this, this is the way that I got into making, making comics was um, back in my first job, I had a really bizarre um, task to do where uh, eBay um, in the US had made a bunch of comics um, that they'd been testing with, with, with users over, over in the States. And then they wanted to test the same comics in the UK. And I got given the job of um, Photoshopping all of these comics and turning the American English into UK English, so removing all the kind of yo's and things like that. Um, and from there, I got to use these comics and, and actually test them with the uh, eBay sellers. And it, it was, we were looking at um, introducing a, a new 
I don't know, it was like a new button or something to do to do something in, in the, the, the listing process of putting an item on eBay. And if you've ever had to work on anything eBay related, you'll know how um, reluctant to change people are. And so, you know, it's really important that you kind of eBay get an idea before they do anything of, of how negative the feedback might be. So I was amazed at how well the, the comics worked and we hadn't had to build a prototype, we hadn't had to do any wireframes, we were literally just testing the, the fundamental concept of what would happen if we changed this. And since then I've just, you know, been using them for loads of things, but it's a great, it's a great activity because users really enjoy it as well. This is an example of um, a comic made by Kevin Cheng when he was at Yahoo, which is, uh, he was doing similar things with looking at um, showing how, how stuff could be done differently in, in comics and then testing it with people. The other way to use comics is to develop post personas um, off the back of them. So I've got mixed feelings about personas. Um, they, they can be okay or they can be really awful um, and they're often really misused and so I'm, I usually have to be persuaded to m that they're going to be used properly by organisations before I'll consider kind of using them. But with this particular client, I was working for a charity in the UK called Action for Children who look after really disadvantaged kids and kids that are in really unfortunate circumstances that are you know, emotionally draining um, and uh, also kind of stigmatised sometimes. They're, they're not sort of open to talking about things. And Action for Children um, had the problem that they'd had a site for years, but they'd never thought of their end service users as being users of their site. So they'd only put up content relating to uh, fundraising and volunteering and working at Action for Children. They'd never put up content for actual service users who need help. And the conversations we needed to have with, with Action for Children when they decided that they wanted to start putting up content for service users was that these users, a lot of the time, aren't going to even be actively looking for information. Not only have they never heard of Action for Children, but there's no way that they're going to be um, browsing in, on public computers in schools or in their kind of foster homes. They're not going to want to sort of leave themselves open to, to, to finding that sort of information. So the only way to get them online is to use offline techniques. The only way to get them to the site is to have trusted adults um, give them information in, in lots of cases. Um, so Denise is a girl that would be coming up to the age of leaving foster care um, where she has to make some quite difficult decisions about where she'll live, who she'll live with and whether she'll stay in, in education or go on to work and uh, we used the, her comic to look at you know maybe getting a, a, a teacher like working with teachers to get them to sort of identify vulnerable kids and help sort of direct them towards the support they can get and we use the comics as well to start to help action for children think about how they need to phrase content and how they need to pose information on their site that will be in a palatable way for users so one sort of final uh, 
way to use comics, is to communicate and explore ideas. So this is an example of Scott McCloud's um, sort of infamous Google Chrome comic. Um, that if you if you Google Google Chrome comic Scott McCloud, you can find um, on on Google's site. You'll, I mean, this this was immensely uh, useful for for getting Chrome, uh, making Chrome the success that it was because. It's a comic that explains to non-technical people why a new technical solution is needed in the browser market. And it was, it was wide, widely shared before uh, Chrome was released, and it, it really helped uh, sort of tech journalists and things like that really understand why Chrome was coming. This is a really quick example of a, um, some ideas around a, a, an iOS training like fitness app that I put together in maybe half an hour with stock photography, um, just looking at uh, visualizing um, a process that we've been discussing around how feedback would go from one user to another user to create a competitive environment and how that might kind of, that might sort of materialize within an interface or, or not. But it's really helpful to visualize these ideas and not just sketch them out as kind of flowcharts or sort of wireframes or whatever, because you, as soon as you start doing that, you, you kind of leave behind the, the really key stuff, which is how the users are going to be using stuff and how they're going to be doing things. So that's a quick screenshot of Comic Life, just in case any of you are interested in it. Um, talk to me later if you want to know more about how it works, but it's really neat. Um, so key points to remember. You must engage your decision makers if you want to make a difference. If you don't engage the actual decision makers and you only stick within your little teams, you're not going to make a real difference. You need to speak to users as often as possible. You need to plan what you're going to do. And you need to wait for ink to dry before using an eraser. So enjoy making comics if you decide to. Um, I can share templates with you or, or sort of I'll support you in if I can do with kind of learning to draw or things like that. Um, ask me questions, whatever. Thank you. Okay, I think we have time for one question. This one over there. Thank you uh, for the for the interesting talk and for the cool examples. Um, I've been thinking uh, while you were speaking about uh, implementing um, uh, comic work or drawing comics in my own work, um, and I've uh, I'm stuck at the question: How do you determine how specific you're going to get uh, with uh, sketching, for instance, a, a user journey? Um, as an example. I'm making. I'm currently working on a travel website, mm -hmm. and uh, the sort of stories that we're tackling are really super specific. Mm -hmm. So <coughs> I can see this uh, being applied to, uh, like, the general story of going to the website, trying to find a good deal, or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But much of the work is actually focused on trying to, um, like, make very specific improvements on on specific parts of the, the user experience. Mm -hmm. Do you see uh, any application for, for comics uh, or drawing comics further on in this um, well, story? Well, I mean, booking travel online is one of the most painful experiences anyone can have. Um, and it's rife for making comics about. Um, there's, 
there are so many challenges that users face when they are trying to book travel. Like the, the sheer volume of stuff to go through alone is, a, is an issue. And that could make for some really great visual, um, visually engaging uh, uh, panels. But when we're talking about really specific interface elements, the, the thing to try and focus on is the, the human, um, what, what the human's really trying to do, not necessarily what the interface is trying to make the human try and do. So with things like ski bookings, they are like the mother of all awfulness when it comes to planning them because of the huge complexity of, of like the group, group kind of dynamics and things. And so showing those kind of interpersonal relationships alongside maybe somebody using a device and having like 10 backseat drivers is maybe the way to go. But come and talk to me because I've done quite a lot of travel stuff, so maybe I'll help. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.